Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Big E here, and we're talking about law for Virginia law enforcement officers. What do you need to know as a law enforcement officer, as a police officer, sheriff, whatever you're doing in law enforcement, uh, protecting the citizens of the Commonwealth? We're t- you know, statutes, constitutional law, cases from the Court of Appeals, uh, new changes, all that kind of stuff. That's what we're talking about. And recently, we've been talking a lot about the special session, which has been focused on, among other things, police reform. What I want to do in the next few episodes is change course a little bit. You know, we talked about use of force issues, and obviously those are a hot topic. But there's certainly been a lot of civil unrest, a lot of police-citizen confrontations, and a lot of situations where law enforcement has either confronted a large group of citizens um, who are, let's say, protesting, and there's just maybe a small group who are also seeking some kind of violent confrontation with law enforcement, um, or maybe you're just in a traffic stop, but you encounter somebody who's decided that they want to try to instigate something, right? They want to try to bait you into some kind of uh, response that they can put on social media or use as a way to, you know, self-aggrandize or, or whatever. So, you know, what is the law about that? That's what I want to talk about. You know, what is, we, we, haven't, we don't spend a lot of time, we don't spend enough time talking about what is obstruction of justice or today, what is disorderly conduct, right? I mean, how many times have you seen some, an officer say, if you don't stop, I'm going to arrest you for disorderly conduct? And that code section, as it turns out, 18.2415, the disorderly conduct code section, is one of the most complicated code sections that we have. I mean, it's sort of the DUI of, you know, of, uh, of police citizen, um, um, you know, encounter arrests. It has a lot of strange posi- uh, parts in it. It has a lot of strange exclusions. And that's the code section that I want to talk about today in today's podcast. And then I'll talk, I'm talk about obstruction and some of the other code sections uh, in, a, in future podcasts. So... We're going to focus today on 18.2415. Now, you might have your own local ordinance as a disorderly conduct code section, and lo- localities are authorized to create their own versions. So you'll, you should, if you're looking at a local ordinance, look at what your language is and whether it matches the state or not. I'm just going to talk about the state code section. And 18.2415 has three main parts, and they're very different than each other. So as we go through, keep in mind that Part A, which is sort of the general disorderly conduct code section, applies pretty much anywhere in a public place. But Parts B and C apply to meetings and also to then to schools, and they have some unique provisions. But what is disorderly conduct, right? I mean, it's not acting disorderly, right? That's, you know, it's something more specific than that. In Virginia, it's defined as when you are in any basically public place. So a street, a highway, a public building, you're in a public conveyance, like a train or a bus, or you're on a public conveyance, um, or you're in any kind of public place. So it only applies in those situations. You can't be arrested arrested for disorderly conduct in your own home if you're in a private part of your own home or in your backyard if it's not open to the public. And disorderly conduct happens when a person engages in conduct that has a direct tendency to cause violence, either by the person at whom it's directed um, uh, or, um, or persons at whom it's directed. So that's the core of, the, of disorderly conduct. You do something that has, a, that has a direct tendency to cause violence in another person. 
And you might think, well, that's a lot of things, right? But actually, as it turns out, it's not. It actually doesn't capture a lot of behavior. And because one of the things that it immediately tells us is it can't be something that's punishable by another provision of the code, right? So what tends to cause violence? Well, shoot at, shooting at somebody tends to cause violence, but that's another code section. So you can't charge disorderly conduct if somebody's shooting. You couldn't, in punching somebody, that causes violence, but that's assault and battery. And we're going to see later on when we talk about this case called battle, um, that these exclusions are really important, right? That it, it ends up that disorderly conduct actually only captures a very small, tiny bit of behavior. But again, it has to be in a public place. And so a public place can be standing in your porch, right? You think about uh, being arrested for drunk in public. You could arrest somebody for drunk in public if they're getting drunk on their front porch as long as it's open to the public. And that's what happens in Hackney versus Commonwealth. It's an old case from 1947, um, but a guy's engaging in disorderly conduct and he's on his front porch and the court said, well, that's a public place. So, because uh, it's, you know, the public can see it. It's in full view of the public. It's open to the public. Uh, so, uh, so it counts as a public place. There are also two other forms of obstruction of, uh, me, of disorderly conduct, and I want to mention what those are. The first is disrupting some kind of meeting. So either you do it on purpose, you're doing it willfully, or you're doing it because you're intoxicated, and you disrupt a funeral, a memorial service, or a meeting of some governing body or political subdivision, city council or you know whatever, uh, county government, or a meeting of any school, of any literary society, or any place of religious worship. Okay, so churches count, funerals count. If you're so, if you do it on purpose or you're intoxicated, if you disrupt it and you thereby do one of two things: you either prevent or interfere with the orderly conduct of that meeting or funeral or memorial service. Or, again, what you do tends to cause acts of violence by the people at whom it's disrupted, right? So that would still be disorderly conduct. Um, so, again, the unique thing here is that you, even if what you're doing doesn't cause violence, if you're disrupting or interfering with the orderly conduct of a meeting of a government body or a division of the government body, like a, you know, county zoning board um, or a school, a literary society, or a place of religious worship, uh, if you disrupt it, <clears throat> then you're guilty of disorderly conduct. Now, you might wonder, hey, what about that crazy, you know, there was a crazy church that used to go around and try to uh, mess with people's funerals, right? And you remember they would show up and it was a huge uh, disruption, right? But what was what they were very careful to do was they were very careful not to actually prevent or interfere with the orderly conduct of a funeral. They would stand nearby, they would protest, everyone would see them, they'd be standing on the side with these vile signs, these horrible things, but you could still conduct the funeral. Uh, and so they didn't interfere with that and they weren't guilty of obstruction of uh, excuse me, disorderly conduct. The other form of disorderly conduct, uh, part C of the code section, covers somebody, again, who's either doing it on purpose or who's doing it because they're intoxicated. They're disrupting the operation of a school or a school activity that's sponsored by the school or conducted by the school. As If the disruption, again, prevents or interferes with the orderly conduct of the, of the activity or, again, causes uh, acts of violence or tends to cause acts of violence. So, uh, again, if the school is sponsoring some kind of event, like a track and field day, and a parent shows up, and whatever that parent does is starting to prevent or interfere with the orderly conduct of that event, they would be guilty of disorderly conduct, even if it didn't tend to cause violence. Um, but it, it's not just on school grounds, right? In other words, let's say the Little League, Little League is using a school's baseball field, 
Um, that's a private event and it doesn't fall under these other code sections. It happens to be at a school, but it's not a school activity or a school sponsored activity. And therefore, uh, it wouldn't be disorderly conduct unless what the parent were doing on the scene, again, had a direct tendency to cause acts of violence by the people or, or person at whom it's directed. And I mentioned schools. It's important to know that the General Assembly amended the code in 2020 to provide that the that disorderly conduct can no longer apply to any elementary or secondary school student if the conduct that's at issue takes place on a um, on the property of the school or on a school bus or again at any activity that is conducted or sponsored by that school. So children, uh, students, even if it's an adult, that's an 18-year-old, but secondary school student, can't be guilty of disorderly conduct by code. And this exception applies anytime they're on the property of the school. So even if the school isn't in session, let's say, again, it's a little league game, the father could be guilty of disorderly conduct for engaging in conduct that is uh, going to cause or tends to cause violence in other people. But if the student, the 18-year-old secondary school student, is doing exactly the same thing that the father is doing, the student just can't be guilty because the code says you cannot uh, 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 apply this code section to elementary or secondary school students on school property. Now, again, it would apply if the student were downtown or on some, you know, public parks field, uh, but it doesn't apply on school property. So the meeting power thing, before we go on to the main disorderly code section, uh, the meeting power is a pretty uh, wide power. In fact, the meeting code section also adds that the person who's in charge of a building or a place or a conveyance or a meeting or whatever uh, that has somebody who's disrupting it, they have the power to call upon anyone, if necessary, to uh, to help them eject the person who is dis being disorderly. And if you think about it again, if, it, if somebody comes in and just spontaneously starts disorder, uh, disrupting a funeral or church service or whatever, you're not going to have law enforcement there necessarily, but they can, the person in charge can gather together sort of a I don't want to say a posse, but it's like a posse of people to eject this person uh, under the code. The number one most important exclusion of disorderly conduct, though, is that the conduct that is being, that is considered to be disruptive, that's considered to be disorderly, cannot be words alone. In other words, it cannot be simply the words that the person is using that is considered to be disorderly. And what I mean by that is if somebody walks over and says in a calm voice, hey, come over here and fight me. I want to fight you, right? That might tend to cause violence in another person. But the code says that my words alone cannot be considered enough to be disorderly conduct. It's got to be something else besides the words. Now, it can include the words. It doesn't say words don't count. It just says words alone don't count. So if I say, hey, come over here and fight me, and I raise my fists up and I take a fighting stance, well, that could be disorderly conduct because I've got my words plus my fists balled up and my fighting stance. And let's say I yell it really loud, get over here and fight me, right? Then, okay, that might be disorderly conduct because there I'm, I've got a loud voice and I've balled fists and I'm in a fighting stance and I've said, come over here and fight me. So it's got to be something more than just the words. And we'll see that in some cases that come up. And again, it can't be something that's another crime. So if I walk over to a police officer and I throw a drink in the police officer's face, right? Well, that's not disorderly conduct anymore. Now that's assault on police officer, right? It's assault and battery because I've, you know, touched him in a rude, angry, eventual manner.
So um, don't charge stuff as disorderly conduct just because you're trying to do somebody a favor. Because what you're ending up doing is you're, you're charging with something they're not guilty of. If you if they're if you want to do them a favor, then you know obviously talk to the prosecutor and see about having the charge reduced. But if you charge it as disorderly conduct, you just end up uh, causing a problem for yourself later on. And so again, this words alone exception is a big exception. Um, the uh, in in Martilla versus Commonwealth, which is a case from two thousand. An individual uh, walks over and starts to make all sorts of uh, offensive comments towards uh, police officers, and he, uh, you know, curses them and expresses contempt for them and so on. He doesn't ma- he doesn't ball up his fist. He doesn't show a weapon. He just basically starts cursing these officers and saying terrible things to them, and they charge him with disorderly conduct in, a, in addition to a bunch of other stuff that he did. He did other things too, but they also charge him with disorderly conduct. And the court says, well, no, that. That is not sufficient, just his words alone, because uh, there was nothing in this case that showed that he had, uh, what he was doing didn't have an immediate, uh, didn't have a tendency to cause an immediate forceful or violent reaction by a reasonable person. And so therefore, uh, it was not sufficient to prove disorderly conduct. But keep in mind that, um, that we're not talking about, you know, words here, um, plus something else, right? It can be more than just the words. It could be, for example, the fact that I'm disrupting a city council meeting, right? And my words, plus the volume of my voice, plus the fact that I'm uh, not following instructions to be quiet from the person who's running the meeting can make me guilty of disorderly conduct. And that's what happens in Howard. Now, Howard is guilty of a meeting disruption disorderly conduct. But the meeting disruption thing also says it can't be words alone, right? Well, what, what does Howard do? Howard's at a city council meeting. He's yelling repeatedly. He's got his hands cupped. The mayor is trying to speak. Um, the defendant had already had his turn. His time was up. The mayor's like, look, sir, your time is up. It doesn't matter. The guy keeps talking and talking. To have him removed, they ultimately have to call a recess to get him out of there. And the court says, that's not words alone. He's violating the time, the place, the manner restrictions that are set up by the mayor at the meeting of the meeting. Um, he's not being punished just for the words, he's being punished for his conduct by yelling loudly, talking over other people, not following the rules. And so that is disorderly conduct, and, and that's a 2009 case. But if you're not at a city council meeting, if you're not at a funeral or a school event or whatever, if you're just out in public, then the disorderly conduct has to have a direct tendency to cause violence. It doesn't actually have to cause violence. It has to have a tendency to cause violence. And so immediately you might think to yourself, well, I've seen a lot of videos of a lot of people uh, trying to bait police officers, right? And in fact, if you read the materials that are being shared online among some protesters, they are doing things with the deliberate attempt to bait police officers. And then we'll say, you know, we're trying to we're trying to elicit an, a disproportionate response uh, in order essentially to get good video and get good uh, propaganda, I guess, uh, against law enforcement. And, and law enforcement officers in some cases are getting baited into doing this. What are they doing? They're playing really loud music or flashing strobe lights in officers' faces, um, spraying OC spray at the ground, not spraying it at officers, but sort of spraying it at the ground, um, you know, sort of, you know, lunging at officers, but not in such a way that it would be so close as to be assault. You know, Doing different things to try to bait officers um, and, again, to wear down their uh, attention and wear down their their patience, essentially. So the question is, well, doesn't that have a direct tendency to cause violence in another person? 
And there's some conflicting language here, and you see the, the court in 1993 versus the court in 2000. So in 1993, in Keys versus the city of Virginia Beach, the court writes, if a law enforcement or other public officer reasonably felt as though he was going to have to fight to subdue an individual, then it, in the eyes of the court, that individual's behavior had a direct tendency to cause an act of violence by the person whom it was directed, even though it was a law enforcement officer. But seven years later, in Martilla versus Commonwealth in 2000, the court does caution properly trained police officers are expected to exercise greater restraint in their response than the average citizen. So 20 years later, I think it's pretty fair to say if you're in a, in a trial in a general district court or circuit court or if you're before the Court of Appeals, they're probably going to hold you to a higher standard, right? Flimity flashing strobe lights in your eyes and, you know, trying to flash lasers in your eyes and, um, you know, playing loud music and so on. All that kind of stuff is certainly designed to uh, and done in order to, 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 to make officers um, overreact. But whether it has a direct tendency to cause violence in another reasonable person, I think the court's going to say officers are going to be held to a higher standard. Now, we're going to see, though, there is some behavior that I think you can, you can say even today the court would agree that is disorderly conduct. That is a tendency to cause violence even in an officer and would be disorderly conduct. And we'll give those, I'm going to give those uh, case examples uh, now. So um, if you look at, for example, Ford versus Commonwealth, in Ford versus Commonwealth, that's just an individual um, who's being loud, waving his arms around, uh, angry. He's angry at the police officers. The officer had tried to talk to him. He said, hey, can I talk to you for a second? The guy just started screaming and yelling and using offensive language and saying terrible things about the police. And in that case, uh, the court said that was not enough. It was Ford versus uh, Newport News. That was not enough. Uh, to be disorderly conduct. It was basically he's being loud, he's being profane, he's being uncivil, but that's not disorderly conduct in the eyes of the code. What you end up with is people who are found guilty of disorderly conduct in these situations are people who are essentially causing a scene, is what I'm going to call it, causing a scene. And if you look at causing a scene, the elements, the, the facts that the court relies on seem to be again and again, not just that it's directed at the officer, that it's you know, loud or vile or whatever, but that what's happening is actually disrupting the world around. So in Barrett versus Commonwealth, this happens in a courthouse. So you can imagine the court's pretty unsympathetic to Mr. Ba Mr. Bennett. Excuse me, I said Barrett, Bennett. Bennett is berating clerks. He's loud. He's demanding. A sheriff's deputy shows up and says, dude, you got to leave. He gets up to the deputy's face about 10 inches away. He starts screaming, do you know who I am? And then he clenches his hands into fists. The deputy says, dude, you need to leave. Uh, the guy says, what are you going to do? Arrest me. And the deputy says, yes, sir, I'm going to arrest you. You're under arrest now. Um, and at trial, the deputy said, I felt threatened by the fact, again, by his demeanor, but also by the fact that he's balling up his fists, he's coming up to my face, he's 10 inches away. The deputy was concerned that he would have to take physical action to do something. And there, based on that articulation, the court said that was enough for disorderly conduct. Uh, and that's a case from 2007. Uh, the defendant's conduct had a direct tendency to cause acts of violence by the person whom it was directed. In this case, it was a sheriff's deputy, right? So you have balled up fists, getting up in the face, 10, you know, 10 inches away. Um, that is disorderly conduct. In Collier versus Commonwealth, this is a person who is drunk and creating a disturbance at an off-track betting center. And the security officers had asked him to leave. He's being loud. He's upset. He says, I don't want to leave. I'm not going to leave. For like 20 minutes, he's cursing the staff. He's cursing the officer. A police officer tries to give him a summons. Um, he, after he refuses to leave, he has his summons explained to him, but he refuses to sign the summons. 
45 minutes this thing takes, and 15 times the police officer had asked the guy to leave the premises. Instead, the defendant throws the pen on the ground, he throws the summons, he kicks stuff, he pushes chairs, um, and ultimately the court says, okay, that's that's a, that's a lot more behavior, right? And a reasonable, office, a reasonable person in the police officer's position would have felt that the defendant was going to use physical force, that he was going to resist being ejected from the center. Um, the officer had to call for backup. Uh, and that was documented, that was important uh, because the defense behavior was getting out of hand. And so, again, the court uh, affirmed that conviction. Um, in Tokora Mansory, uh, the uh, defendant in, that, in this case, and this is a 2009 case, um, has a crash, fire rescue arrives, immediately the defendant starts to get belligerent. She refuses to speak to the investigating officer. She says, don't talk to me. Um, she launches into a tirade against the person who's on the scene. Officer says, ma'am, you need to calm down. She continues to curse. Um, at that point, the officer says, hey, look, you're under arrest for disorderly. Uh, but she swings away from the officer. She jerks away from his grasp. Um, ultimately, uh, they have a struggle. And the court says that, again, it's the extended period of time, the screaming profanity, certainly, because words, words alone count. They're just not enough. Refuse to obey commands, refuse to answer questions, loudly curses. And the court notes in this case, there was such a scene that vehicles are starting to pull over and look at what's going on. So it's, causing, it's drawing attention, right? It's actually causing public alarm. And you can see that and there's evidence of it happening because of the defendant's actions. And so the court agreed then here, this is causing, a, this has a tendency to cause violence by the officer who's going to have to use violence to solve the situation. And so the court affirmed that conviction as well. Um, in Carey versus Commonwealth, uh, the defendant was shouting and walking along the road at one o'clock in the morning. And again, that's something that we've seen already in Ford, right? The court said that wasn't enough. Somebody just sort of loud and shouting and so on. But here he's, he's being so loud that people across the road can hear him. The noise draws their attention. You know, crowds of people start, start coming out to see what's going on. An officer walks up and says, what's your name? Um, he faces off against the officer, but refuses to identify himself. And the court again said here, the defendant's actions had the intent to cause public inconvenience, annoyance, or alarm. But notice the documentation. Notice the fact that the officer was able to articulate how public inconvenience or alarm took place because of all these people sort of gathering. Now, in Brown versus Commonwealth, you have an officer responding who's trying to separate two people in a, in a domestic uh, dispute, basically trying to help this woman get out of her house, collect her property. Uh, they escort uh, the other party away and keep them separated. Um, but they, they say, look, just do me a favor, stay down here, collect your property, and then you can get out. Uh, and she refuses. She, she tries to, she has to be escorted back and they have to keep saying, no, please don't. You're just, you're causing more of a problem. I need you guys to keep separated. She refuses. Uh, instead of taking her things, it's like, look, it's time to take your things and leave. Um, she refuses to collect her things. She's cursing at the officer. She starts walking towards the officer. And, uh, he's, and so she says, officer, if you get too close to me, I'm going to punch you. Uh, and so, again, the court looks at this and says, well, the officer can't walk away. He's in the middle of responding to a call for service for a domestic dispute, and it's happening in the middle of the night. So the officer is stuck in this position, and her conduct, which is screaming profanities, which is words, but it's not words alone. It's something else. Screaming profanities, demanding to enter the uh, apartment, 
that she's being injected from. It's the it's the it's the boyfriend's apartment, and he doesn't want her to stay anymore. Um, so she's refusing to leave. She's refusing to collect her belongings. She's threatening the officer. Again, this creates a disintegrating situation, which uh, requires the intervention of the officer. And so again, in the eyes of the court, it has a direct tendency to cause uh, acts of violence uh, in the in in the acts of, of in, in another person. Um, then, of course, Keys versus Commonwealth is a great example. Again, something that, you know, what I mentioned before, which is if I simply walk up in a calm tone of voice and say, hey, uh, I want to fight you, that doesn't get me disorderly conduct. But in Keys, after Mr. Keys is stopped for a traffic infraction, I mean, Mrs. Keys is stopped for a traffic infraction, um, Ms. Keys, uh, she puts her hands down, balls up her fists, straightens up, and just starts screaming at the police officer. And the officer says, again, ma'am, you need to calm down, or I'm going to arrest you for disorderly conduct. And she states, you're not going to do anything to me. And she says, I want a real police officer here. She continues to scream. And the officer is able to articulate based upon her uh, physical acts, right, which is the balling up her fists and her straightening up her body and coming towards the officer, that she is going to fight. He can say, "This is these are signs to me that she's getting ready to fight. And in the eyes of the court, such willful, intemperate, and provocative conduct in response to proper law enforcement activity, audible for several blocks and visible from a public street, clearly evinced the intent or recklessness contemplated by the disorderly conduct statute. Because the officer reasonably felt as though he was going to have to fight to subdue the defendant, her behavior had a direct tendency uh, to cause acts of violence with a person at whom it was directed. Now, that having been said, like I said, Keyes is a 1993 case. And when you look at the cases from later... Uh, from 2000 and later, you can see the court is starting to hold officers to a higher standard. Today, if somebody got out of their car, balled up their fists at their sides, and started screaming at an officer and saying, uh, "Officer, you know, you're, ter- you know, just saying horrible, vile things," but just screaming and saying these things, would a court find someone guilty of disorderly conduct for that today in 2020? I think you might be hard pressed to convince a jury of that today. I think a jury might not do that. Uh, would a general district court judge, would a circuit court judge. This case seems to say that you could, depending on how well you articulated and described what the defendant was doing, if the if your you know camera managed to capture it and did a good job of capturing the behavior. Although again, in these close face-to-face situations, the camera is not going to give you good information. Um, norm necessarily will a, a, a car camera, but that's something to keep in mind. Um, in Williams versus Commonwealth, again, you have that threat, but you have additional acts. You have uh, a defendant who was angry because the Walgreens, he'd just been fired from Walgreens. He confronts the manager of the Walgreens. He says, I'm going to kick your ass. He says, I'm going to come back and F you up. Um, the officer arrives, tries to talk to Mr. Williams. Uh, Mr. Williams refuses to talk to the officer. And ultimately, they you know get to tell him to leave. He refuses to leave, and the uh, they have to forcibly remove him from the scene. Again, the court says in this situation, a reasonable person under these facts would likely respond to his conduct with violence because he's not leaving the property, right? And he's instead saying, uh, "I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to fight you. Uh, I'm going to kick your." your ass, I'm going to F you up, right? So you have behavior plus those words, and that together, the words plus the behavior uh, are, are designed or intended to cause violence. These kinds of encounters aren't necessarily face-to-face one-on-one, though. They can be big groups, um, and that's what happens in Davis. In Davis, the police respond to a huge fight in a park. It's over 100 people, and one of the people on the scene is Davis. She's got a cup 
and the officer says, hey, what is in that cup? And she's, you know, officer, she curses the officer. She walks away. The officer tries to stop her. She goes to throw whatever's in the cup at the officer's face, but the officer is able to stop her first and arrest her. And again, the court says here, her nonverbal conduct, her refusal to comply with the officer's request to stop and her abusive demeanor, uh, which, cult, cult, uh, which ended with her forcibly throwing the cup at the officer, uh, was conduct that had a direct tendency to cause an immediate forceful and violent reaction by a reasonable person in the officer's position. And what's important about this case is it's happening in the middle of a riot, right? This isn't just somebody walking down the street. This isn't just some, you know, uh, public fair. This is a this is a bunch of this is a hundred plus people having a fight in a park and the officer's trying to figure out what's going on and who's dangerous and who's not. Um, in Thor versus Commonwealth, the defendant calls the police himself uh, and is asking for help. He's panicking. He says his life is in danger, but he's refusing to explain why his life is in danger. He says, I only want to talk to this one detective who's not around. So the police show up. They show up to his hotel room. He's still screaming, but he says, no, I'm only going to talk to this one person. Um, so there, you know, ask yourself, well, what's causing violence? They arrest him for disorderly conduct. But there, this is really where we again start falling back on, well, you're being loud, you're being disruptive, so I'm going to arrest you for disorderly conduct. Well, you're in a hotel room. Uh, and that's, you're, what you're doing isn't causing violence, as it doesn't have a direct tendency to cause violence in the hearts of others. It's just really disruptive behavior. Um, and so that's not disorderly conduct. Um, instead, what when the screaming starts to, and, and it starts to become problematic is when it becomes abusive and threatening and combined with some other behavior, uh, like in Jolinsky, where the defendant's at a bar, he's upset because he's being ejected from the bar, he doesn't want to be objective, ejected from the bar, so instead of leaving the bar, he starts to get loud, he starts to get abusive, a crowd starts to gather, uh, the officer says, I'm going to arrest you, and the defendant starts waving his arms around, he starts continuing to yell, um, and so there again, the officer is able to articulate what he's looking at here is, is basically pre-fight indicators, um, that this is an indication that he's getting ready to fight, he's saying he wants to fight, his body is saying he wants to fight, and so the court agrees it's reasonable to infer that he's, again, not going to stop, that he's, um, that he's going to continue to try to, to get back into this bar, which he can't do because he's been ejected. And his conduct is directed at the officer, his conduct is directed at other people, it has a tendency to cause violence both by the officer and other people, and so uh, it was uh, reasonable to arrest him in that case, and, and, and he was guilty of that. Keep in mind, of course, that your behavior can't be something else, uh, and that's what happens in Battle versus Commonwealth. He gets arrested, Battle gets arrested for disorderly conduct, but what he really did in that case was he assaulted a police officer, he assaults a club patron, he refuses to obey in order to leave the property, so he's guilty of trespassing, he refuses to clear the sidewalk, he obstructs free passage of other people. Uh, and so those, what the defense uh, very effectively does in battle is come in and say, my client is not guilty of disorderly conduct because he's guilty of assault and police officer, he's guilty of assault and battery, he's guilty of trespassing, and he's guilty of obstructing free passage of others. And so because he's guilty of all those crimes, he's not guilty of disorderly conduct. This is why uh, I, I encourage officers never to 
just give somebody a disorderly conduct charge as sort of a favor when they're actually guilty of something else because what's, ha- what's going to happen is that disorderly conduct charge will be immediately dismissed because it's not disorderly conduct. If it's an assault officer, it's assault officer. If it's a destruction of justice, charge is obstruction of justice. And then if you believe that the charge should be reduced for some reason, then go see the prosecutor, go talk to the commonwealth attorney and, and see about it or just don't charge at all and see if you can figure out some other way to address the situation, maybe hold off on charging until later. That's always okay too, if, if tactically feasible. So uh, that's sort of an introduction to disorderly conduct. And that's what I wanted to do today was kind of give you a sense of what this code section is, what it means, and, um, and, and how, to, how it applies and how it doesn't apply in different situations. I hope that was useful for you guys today. Uh, if you like this podcast, please tell your friends. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. We're on uh, SoundCloud, of course, where a lot of you guys listen to us. If you want to be on another, if you want us to be on another platform, let me know. We'll move there. We'll we'll, we'll add we'll add that to our um, to our tool belt. Uh, but that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Thanks for hanging out with me. Stay safe and don't get captured.